Chapter 13 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 13. How Jocelyn Monchensey Encountered a Masked Horseman on Stamford Hill. Two days after the events last recorded, a horseman, followed at a respectful distance by a mounted attendant, took his way up Stamford Hill. He was young, and of singularly prepossessing appearance, with a countenance full of fire and spirit, and blooming with health, and it was easy to see that his life had been passed in the country, and in constant manly exercise. For though he managed his horse, a powerful bay charger, to perfection, there was nothing of the town gallant, or of the soldier about him. His doublet and cloak were of a plain dark material, and had seen service, but they well became his fine symmetrical figure, as did the buff boots defending his well-made vigorous limbs. Better seat and saddle, or lighter hand with bridle, no man could possess than he, and his noble steed, which like himself was full of courage and ardor, responded to all his movements, and obeyed the slightest indication of his will. His arms were rapier and dagger, and his broad-leaved hat, ornamented with a black feather, covered the luxuriant brown locks that fell in long ringlets over his shoulders. So debonair was the young horseman in deportment, so graceful in figure, and so comely in looks, that he had excited no little admiration as he rode forth at an early hour that morning from Bishopgate Street, and passing under the wide portal in the old city walls, speeded towards the then royal district of Shoreditch, leaving old Bedlam and its saddening associations on the right, and Finsbury Fields, with its gardens, dog-houses, and windmills, on the left. At the end of Bishopgate Street without, a considerable crowd was collected round a party of comely young milkmaids, who were executing a lively and characteristic dance to the accompaniment of a bagpipe and fiddle. Instead of carrying pails as was their wont, these milkmaids, who were all very neatly attired, bore on their heads a pile of silver plate, borrowed for the occasion, arranged like a pyramid, and adorned with ribbons and flowers. In this way they visited all their customers and danced before their doors. A pretty usage then observed in the environs of the metropolis in the month of May. The merry milkmaid set up a joyous shout as the youth rode by, and many a bright eye followed his gallant figure till it disappeared. At the conduit beyond Shoreditch, a pack of young girls who were drawing water, suspended their task to look after him, and so did every buxom country lass he encountered, whether seated in tilted cart or on a pillion behind her sturdy sire. To each salutation addressed to him, the young man cordially replied, in a voice blithe as his looks, and in some cases, where the greeting was given by an elderly personage, or a cap was respectfully doffed to him, he uncovered his own proud head, and displayed his handsome features yet more fully. So much for the master, now for the man. In his own opinion, at least, for he was by no means deficient in self-conceit, the latter came in for an equal share of admiration. And Certus, if impudence could help him to win it, he lacked not the recommendation. Staring most of the girls out of countenance, he leered at some of them so offensively that their male companions shook their fists or whips at him, and sometimes launched a stone at his head. Equally free was he in the use of his tongue, and his jests were so scurrilous and so little relished by those to whom they were addressed, that it was, perhaps well for him, in some instances, that the speed at which he rode soon carried him out of harm's reach. The knave was not ill-favored, being young, supple of limb, olive-complexioned, 
black-eyed, saucy, roguish-looking, with a turned-up nose and extremely white teeth. He wore no livery, and indeed his attire was rather that of a citizen's apprentice than such as beseemed a gentleman's lackey. He was well mounted on a stout sorrel horse, but though the animal was tractable enough and easy in its paces, he experienced considerable difficulty in maintaining his seat on its back. In this way, Jocelyn Monchensey and Dick Taverner, for the reader will have had no difficulty in recognizing the pair, arrived at Stamford Hill, and the former, drawing in the rein, proceeded slowly up the gentle ascent. It was one of those delicious spring mornings when all nature seems to rejoice, when the newly opened leaves are greenest and freshest, when the lark springs blithest from the verdant mead and soars nearest heaven, when a thousand other feathered choristers warble forth their notes in copse and hedge, when the rooks caw mellowly near their nests in the lofty trees, when gentle showers having fallen overnight have kindly prepared the earth for the morrow's genial warmth and sunshine, when that sunshine each moment calls some new object into life and beauty, when all you look upon is pleasant to the eye, all you listen to is delightful to the ear. In short, it was one of those exquisite mornings only to be met with in the merry month of May, and only to be experienced in full perfection in merry England. Arrived at the summit of the hill commanding such extensively charming views, Jocelyn halted and looked back with wonder at the vast and populous city he had just quitted, now spread out before him in all its splendor and beauty. In his eyes it seemed already overgrown, though it had not attained a tithe of its present proportions. But he could only judge according to his opportunity, and was unable to foresee its future magnitude. But if London has waxed in size, wealth, and population during the last two centuries and a half, it has lost nearly all the peculiar features of beauty which distinguished it up to that time, and made it so attractive to Jocelyn's eyes. The diversified and picturesque architecture of its ancient habitations, as yet undisturbed by the innovations of the Italian and Dutch schools, and brought to full perfection in the latter part of the reign of Elizabeth, gave the whole city a characteristic and fanciful appearance. Old towers, old belfries, old crosses, slender spires innumerable, rose up amid a world of quaint gables and angular roofs. Story above story sprang those curious dwellings, irregular yet homogeneous, dear to the painter's and the poet's eye, elaborate in ornament, grotesque in design, well suited to the climate and admirably adapted to the wants and comforts of the inhabitants, picturesque like the age itself, like its costume, its manners, its literature. All these characteristic beauties and peculiarities are now utterly gone. All the old picturesque habitations had been devoured by fire, and a new city has risen in their stead. Not to compare with the old city, though, and conveying no notion whatever of it, any more than you or I, worthy reader, in our formal and, I grieve to say it, ill-contrived attire, resemble the picturesque-looking denizens of London, clad in doublet, mantle, and hose, in the time of James I. Another advantage in those days must not be forgotten— the canopy of smoke overhanging the vast modern Babel, and oftentimes obscuring even the light of the sun itself, did not dim the beauties of the ancient city. Sea coal being but little used in comparison with wood, of which there was then abundance, as at this time in the capital of France, thus the atmosphere was clearer and lighter, and served as a finer medium to reveal objects which would now be lost at a quarter of the distance. Fair, sparkling, and clearly defined, then, rose up old London before Jocelyn's gaze, girded round with grey walls, defended by battlements, and approached by lofty gates, four of which, to wit, 
Cripplegate, Moorgate, Bishopgate, and Aldgate, were visible from where he stood. It riveted attention from its immense congregation of roofs, spires, pinnacles, and vanes, all glittering in the sunshine, while in the midst of all, and preeminent above all, towered one gigantic pile, the glorious Gothic cathedral. Far on the east and beyond the city walls, though surrounded by its own mural defenses, was seen the frowning tower of London, part fortress and part prison, a structure never viewed in those days without terror, being the scene of so many passing tragedies. Looking westward and rapidly surveying the gardens and pleasant suburban villages lying on the north of the Strand, the young man's gaze settled for a moment on Charing Cross, the elaborately carved memorial to his queen, Eleanor, erected by Edward I, and then ranging over the palace of Whitehall and its two gates, Westminster Abbey, more beautiful without its towers than with them, it became fixed upon Westminster Hall, for there, in one of its chambers, the ceiling of which was adorned with gilded stars, were held the councils of that terrible tribunal which had robbed him of his inheritance, and now threatened him with deprivation of liberty and mutilation of person. A shudder crossed him as he thought of the star chamber, and he turned his gaze elsewhere, trying to bring the whole glorious city within his ken. A splendid view indeed! Well might King James himself exclaim when standing, not many years previously, on the very spot where Jocelyn now stood, and looking upon London for the first time since his accession to the throne of England, well might he exclaim in rapturous accents as he gazed on the magnificence of the capital, At last the richest jewel in a monarch's crown is mine. After satiating himself with this, to him, novel and wonderful prospect, Jocelyn began to bestow his attention on objects closer at hand, and examined the landscapes on either side of the eminence, which, without offering any features of extraordinary beauty, were generally pleasing, and exercised a soothing influence upon his mind. At that time Stamford Hill was crowned with a grove of trees, and its eastern declivity was overgrown with brushwood. The whole country on the Essex side was more or less marshy until Epping Forest, some three miles off, was reached. Through a swampy vale on the left, the River Lee, so dear to the angler, took its slow and silent course, while through a green valley on the right flowed the new river, then only just opened. Pointing out the latter channel to Jocelyn, Dick Tavener, who had now come up, informed him that he was present at the completion of that important undertaking. And a famous sight it was, the apprentice said. The Lord Mayor of London, the Alderman, and the Recorder were all present in their robes and gowns to watch the floodgate opened, which was to pour the stream that had run from Amwell Head into the great cistern near Islington, and this was done amidst deafening cheers and the thunder of ordnance. A proud day it was for Sir Hugh Middleton, Dick added, and some reward for his perseverance through difficulties and disappointments. It is to be hoped the good gentleman has obtained more substantial reward than that, Jocelyn replied. He has conferred an inestimable boon upon his fellow citizens, and is entitled to their gratitude for it. As to gratitude on the part of the citizens, I can't say much for that, sir, and it is not every man that meets with his deserts, or we know where our friends Sir Giles Mompesson and Sir Francis Mitchell would be. The good cits are content to drink the pure water of the new river, without bestowing a thought on him who has brought it to their doors. Meantime, the work has well-nigh beggared Sir Hugh Middleton, and he is likely to obtain little recompense beyond what the consciousness of his own beneficent act will afford him. "'But will not the king requite him?' Jocelyn asked. "'The king has requited him with a title,' Dick returned. "'A title, however, which may be purchased at a less price 
than good Sir Hugh has paid for it nowadays. But it must be owned, to our sovereign's credit, that he did far more than the citizens of London would do, since when they refused to assist Master Middleton, as he then was, in his most useful work, King James undertook, and bound himself by indenture under the great seal, to pay half the expenses. Without this, it would probably never have been accomplished. I trust it may be profitable to Sir Hugh in the end, Jocelyn said, and if not, he will reap his reward hereafter. It is not unlikely we may encounter him, as he now dwells near Edmonton, and is frequently on the road, Dick said, and if so, I will point him out to you. I have some slight acquaintance with him, having often served him in my master's shop in Paul's churchyard. Talking of Edmonton, with your permission, sir, we will break our fast at the bell, note one, where I am known, and where you will be well served. The host is a jovial fellow and trusty, and may give us information which will be useful before we proceed on our perilous expedition to Theobald's. I care not how soon we arrive there, Jocelyn cried, for the morning has so quickened my appetite that the bare idea of thy host's good cheer makes all delay in attacking it unsupportable. I am entirely of your opinion, sir, Dick said, smacking his lips. At the bell at Edmonton we are sure of fresh fish from the lee, fresh eggs from the farmyard, and stout ale from the cellar, and if these three things do not constitute a good breakfast, I know not what others do. So let us be jogging onwards. We have barely two miles to ride. Five minutes to Tottenham, ten to Edmonton. Tis done. It was not, however, accomplished quite so soon as Dick anticipated. Ere fifty yards were traversed, they were brought to a stop by an unlooked-for incident. Suddenly emerging from a thick covert of wood, which had concealed him from view, a horseman planted himself directly in their path, ordering them in a loud, authoritative voice to stand, and enforcing attention to the injunction by leveling a caliver at Jocelyn's head. The appearance of this personage was as mysterious as formidable. The upper part of his features was concealed by a black mask. His habiliments were sable, and the color of his powerful steed was sable likewise. Boots, cap, cloak, and feather were all of the same dusky hue. His frame was strongly built, and besides the caliver he was armed with sword and poniard. Altogether he constituted an unpleasant obstacle in the way. Dick Taverner was not able to render much assistance on the occasion. The suddenness with which the masked horseman burst forth upon them scared his horse, and the animal, becoming unmanageable, began to rear and finally threw its rider to the ground, luckily without doing him much damage. Meanwhile, the horseman, lowering his caliver, thus addressed Jocelyn, who, taking him for a robber, was prepared to resist the attack. "'You are mistaken in me, Master Jocelyn Munchensee,' he said. "'I have no design upon your purse. I call upon you to surrender yourself my prisoner.' "'Never with life,' the young man replied. "'In spite of your disguise, I recognize you as one of Sir Giles Mompesson's myrmidons, and you may conclude from our former encounter whether my resistance will be determined or not.' "'You had not escaped on that occasion but for my connivance, Master Jocelyn,' the man in the mask rejoined. "'Now, hear me. I am willing to befriend you on certain conditions. And to prove my sincerity, I engage you shall go free if you accept them.' "'I do not feel disposed to make any terms with you,' Jocelyn said sternly. "'And as to my freedom of departure, I will take care that it is not hindered.' "'I hold a warrant from the Star Chamber for your arrest,' said the man in the mask." and you will vainly offer resistance if I choose to execute it. Let this be well understood before I proceed, and now to show you the extent of my information concerning you, and that I am fully aware of your proceedings, 
I will relate to you what you have done since you fled with that froward apprentice, whose tricks will assuredly bring him to Bridewell, from the Three Cranes. You were landed at London Bridge, and went thence with your companion to the Rose at Newington Butts, where you lay that night, and remained concealed, as you fancied, during the whole of the next day. I say you fancied your retreat was unknown, because I was aware of it, and could have seized you had I been so disposed. The next night you removed to the Crown in Bishopgate Street, and as you did not care to return to your lodgings near St. Botolph's Church without Aldgate, you privily dispatched Dick Taverner to bring your horses from the Falcon in Grace Church Street, where you had left them, with the foolhardy intention of setting forth this morning to Theobald's to try and obtain an interview of the king. "'You have spoken the truth,' Jocelyn replied in amazement. "'But if you designed to arrest me, and could have done so, why did you defer your purpose?' "'Question me not on that point. Some day or other I may satisfy you. Not now. Enough that I have conceived a regard for you, and will not harm you unless compelled to do so by self-defense. Nay, more, I will serve you. You must not go to Theobald's. Tis a mad scheme, conceived by a hot brain, and will bring destruction upon you. If you persist in it, I must follow you thither and prevent greater mischief.' "'Follow me, then, if you list,' Jocelyn cried, for go I shall.' but be assured I will liberate myself from you if I can. Go, hot-headed boy, the man in the mask rejoined, but then he added quickly, Yet, no, I will not deliver you thus to the power of your enemies, without a further effort to save you. Since you are resolved to go to Theobald's, you must have a protector, a protector able to shield you even from Buckingham, whose enmity you have reason to dread. There is only one person who can do this, and that is Count Gondomar, the Spanish leisure ambassador. Luckily, he is with the king now. In place of making any idle attempts to obtain an interview of his majesty, or forcing yourself unauthorized on the royal presence, which will end in your arrest by the knight marshal, seek out Count Gondomar, and deliver this token to him. Tell him your story, and do what he bids you. And as he spoke, the man in the mask held forth a ring, which Jocelyn took. I intended to make certain conditions with you, the mysterious personage pursued, for the service I should render you, but you have thwarted my plans by your obstinacy, and I must reserve them to our next meeting, for we shall meet again, and that ere long. And then when you tender your thanks for what I have now done, I will tell you how to requite the obligation. I swear to requite it if I can, and as you desire, Jocelyn cried, struck by the other's manner. Enough, the masked personage rejoined. I am satisfied. Proceed on your way, and may good fortune attend you. Your destiny is in your own hands. Obey Count Gondomar's behests, and he will aid you effectually. And without a word more, the man in the mask struck spurs into his horse's sides and dashed down the hill at a headlong pace in the direction of London. Jocelyn looked after him and had not recovered from his surprise at the singular interview that had taken place when he disappeared. By this time, Dick Taverner, having regained his feet, limped towards him, leading his horse. It must be the fiend in person, quoth the apprentice, contriving to regain the saddle. I trust you have made no compact with him, sir. Not a sinful one, I hope, Jocelyn replied, glancing at the ring. And they proceeded on their way towards Tottenham, and were presently saluted by the merry ringing of bells proclaiming some village festival. Note 1. Lest we should be charged with an anachronism, we may mention that the bell at Edmonton, immortalized in the story of John Gilpin, was in good repute in the days we treat of, 
as will appear from the following extract from John Seville's tractate entitled King James, His Entertainment at Theobald's, with his welcome to London. Having described the vast concourse of people that flocked forth to greet their new sovereign on his approach to the metropolis, Honest John says, After our breakfast at Edmonton at the sign of the bell, we took occasion to note how many would come down in the next hour, so coming up into a chamber next to the street, where we might both best see, and likewise take notice of all passengers, we called for an hourglass, and after we had disposed of ourselves, who should take the number of the horse, and who the foot, we turned the hourglass, which before it was half run out, we could not possibly truly number them, they came so exceedingly fast. But there we broke off, and made our account of three hundred nine horses, and one hundred thirty-seven footmen, which course continued that day from four o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, and the day before also, as the host of the house told us, without intermission. Besides establishing the existence of the renowned bell at this period, the foregoing passage is curious in other respects. End of chapter 13